Good evening. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the last chapter of 1 John, chapter 5. So we're continuing to get close to the end here. And uh, glad to see everyone tonight. Thank you for being here uh, and joining us as we sing, as we uh, look at God's Word. It's a privilege to be able to gather together each week and, and do this. I really enjoy being here with you all. And tonight we'll be looking at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 5, 1 John. Um, John's beginning to bring things to a close here in this, in this letter. And next week in particular, we'll see that how he's kind of wrapping things up. Uh, and these verses tonight are, are difficult to understand on, on some levels, but we'll do our best. And um, by God's grace, we will understand what John is talking about here. And let me read out for you our two verses for tonight, and then we'll open with a word of prayer. So 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Let's open in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this night. Thank you, Lord, for your, your inspired word that we can trust. Um, I pray, Father, tonight and ask for your grace as we read it, as we desire to understand the meaning, and as we desire to learn the truth of your word. Um, Father, we, we ask that you would guide and direct in that, that whether it's tonight or any, any day that we read your word, any time we open up the Bible, that you would help us through your Holy Spirit to have understanding, that we would not follow after man-made ideas, uh, things that would pull us away from the truth, Lord. I pray that we would desire to stick closely to your perfect and trustworthy word. We're so grateful for it. And thank you for this privilege tonight of gathering together as your children to, to hear what you have said to us. Lord, encourage us tonight in your word. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I think one of the big problems that we have, or maybe you don't, I don't know, that I've had with this passage of Scripture is that I can get distracted by my own thoughts about what it means. I can get distracted, um, and, and what I mean is that we read these verses, and one thing can sort of consume our thoughts and cause us to miss the point. And what is it that, that distracts us, or it has distracted me in the past, maybe you too, I don't know. Well, I think it's what John says about sin here, or the categories that he seems to put sin into. And we can quickly get stuck wondering, what in the world is sin that leads to death? <laughs> right? I can, I can kind of get stuck on that. Um, and if we're not careful here, we can wrongly conclude some things about our salvation. A Christian can read this passage and come to some wrong conclusions um, about their own salvation. 
how, how would someone do that? Well, by forgetting the rest of Scripture, including John's own writing and what he says about our salvation. So let's try not to fall into that trap as we look at these verses. I do believe that John's original audience, who he, who he originally wrote to, knew, knew what he was talking about here. When he referred to sin here, uh, as, as we read in our passage, I think they knew what John was talking about. But we're left with some questions because John doesn't specify what he's referring to in the text. He mentions sin in a sort of in a general sense and what it can lead to, but he doesn't say it's this sin and this sin or that sin. He doesn't like lay them out so we can go, okay, yeah, I'm going to avoid those sins for sure, right? We want to avoid all sin if we can. Um, so we have to do our best with, with this text and with the rest of Scripture and the help of the Holy Spirit to come to some understanding of this passage. But let's refresh our thinking, first of all, for a minute uh, about what we studied last week. Because as I said last week, uh, what we'll look at tonight is to be understood considering the previous verses. Okay? They, they go together. So we want to we wanna understand that. If you remember, we were looking at what John wrote about prayer last week and, and what our expectations should be regarding our prayers. In, in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, which we looked at last week, it says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. So John says there is confidence to be had as Christians when we pray and we ask of God. There's confidence to be had. He hears us, John said. Since we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we also know that God has answered our prayer and granted what we asked of him. But there are four words that people often forget about but are necessary for this promise to be true. What were those four words that we talked about last week? It's a, in his will. Yeah, right, according to his will. Those, those are a must to, to understand this passage properly. We have to understand that it's, it's in accordance with the will of God, not our will, not my will. Um, that's not how it works. John wrote about the fact that we as believers can be assured that whatever we pray for, if it is consistent with the sovereign will of God, he will hear. And by hear, John means he will listen, he will answer according to his will. And uh, we need to notice that last week's verses were about prayer, and this week's verses are still under that umbrella of focus. First uh, John chapter 5 is where we're at. First <laughs> John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Um, last week, John wrote about asking anything according to the will of God. This week, John speaks about our, our intercession for a brother and says, he shall ask. Okay, so we're, we're still on the topic of prayer and God answering prayer or not. Uh, and so what we read already in our passage for tonight is that if you see a brother sinning, that person shall ask of God. So as we examine these verses tonight, consider the need for prayer, and the promise from last week that God hears when prayers are offered in accordance with His will. And we need to consider that. It seems there are only two legitimate possibilities regarding who John means when he uses the word brother here. Okay, this, this could be a brother, meaning a true Christian, 
born again, saved by Christ. This could be a brother, meaning someone who says and thinks they are, but are not. Okay, those, those two possibilities would be consistent with John's comparisons that we've already seen in this letter, as, as we've seen many times. His comparisons, his constant focus on those who are true believers and those who are false believers. He's said things about both. And in fact, his, his focus in this letter has been to tell who is real, who is not real. What is, who is a true believer, who is not a true believer? So, I don't believe it's a stretch then to think that what he references here is at least to one of those, to one of those two. Sometimes in Scripture, the word brother is used in a general sense, meaning your, your brother human being, right? But I don't believe that's what John is after here. John's goal here is that Christians would respond to seeing the sin of a brother or sister in Christ in a certain way, that we would respond in a certain way. Not that we would just talk about the fact that they're sinning. Right? We're good at that. Someone's sinning. I'm, I'm good at talking about it. I can talk to other people about it. And, uh, and, and not that we would think about how terrible they are for being a sinner, right? as if I'm somehow better than them. But the goal is is that we would go to God in prayer for our brother or sister in Christ, that we'd intercede for them. John says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. He shall ask means that you should pray. You're not asking someone else, right? We're we're asking God. We're going to God with this. Remembering that if you ask according to God's will, he will hear. Uh, John is, I think, intentionally being very specific about the results of the sin in this passage, but not so specific about what the sin is. So what are the, open question, what are the two different results of sin that John lays out here? What are those two different results? (laughs) Yeah, one leads to death, one doesn't lead to death. Okay, sin not leading to death and sin leading to death. Now we have to remember that in a general sense, all sin leads to death, right? I mean, we have to understand that biblically, that is true. For the wages of sin is death, right? Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin and death, death and sin, they're connected, right? It's, it's absolutely true that in, a, in that sense, all sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. But John is getting more specific than that general truth about the connection between sin and death. So what's, what's the difference here? Well, if John is using the word brother, to, there's going to be several ifs here as we go through this, okay? If John is using the word brother to describe a true Christian here, then this sin leading to death or not leading to death cannot be talking about spiritual death. Okay? If, if this is a true Christian that someone sees, a true Christian sinning, why can John not mean spiritual death when he talks about, about this sin? 
Right. Right, but if, if it's a Christian that he's seeing sinning, and, he, and he's talking about a sin that leads to death, why can't he be talking about spiritual death there? Yeah, there, he's, there is no spiritual death. Jesus just died for our sins, right? A Christian has already come from death to life, spiritual death, death to spiritual life, right? Uh, by being born again in Christ. Because a Christian, and because a Christian cannot lose their salvation. He can't be talking about spiritual death in relation to this person who is a true believer. A Christian cannot lose their salvation. How do we know that? Well, we know there are several verses. Uh, your salvation is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5. And because Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Okay, there, we don't lose our salvation. So he cannot be talking about spiritual death if he's writing to, or if he's talking about a true Christian here who's sinning. If John were saying that a true Christian could commit a sin that led to spiritual death, then the other parts of Scripture wouldn't, wouldn't be true, right? Jesus would be a liar. You see, if John is talking about a true Christian, this cannot be a reference to spiritual death. The only thing left then is physical death, right? Could, could John be talking about physical death? Could it be possible for a true Christian to commit a sin leading to physical death? Yes, right? Of course. Suicide would be one of those. Getting drunk, dying in a car crash be one of those. You could have a whole list of things, a sin that people could commit that led, leads to their death. A true Christian could do that. Then there's also the fact that God might take the life of a Christian because of their sin. He can end a Christian's life if he sees fit because their sin is so great that it, it brings shame upon the church. It makes the gospel of Jesus Christ a mockery. It could be so harmful, harmful to the life of the church and other Christians that it's better that he takes that, that person home to preserve the purity and the testimony of his church. That sounds kind of a little scary. <laughs> do we have any biblical, biblical examples of this? Yes, we do. If you turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 11. Um, here we'll have a problem in the church with folks taking communion in an unworthy manner, right? And Paul's, he's seriously scalding them and telling them what God has done, telling the people that he's writing to what God has done to some of them because of this sin. Okay, in, before I tell you where we're going to read, I just want to read a portion of this beforehand to give a little context this is what Paul is talking about with, with the church that he's writing to. This is in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I mean, imagine that. You're coming together and as the church and you're partaking in the Lord's Supper and people are getting drunk. People are eating everything that's on the tray and other people don't get any. Right? They're eating it, they're partaking of this as a meal to fill their bellies. And let's skip down to verse 27 in 1 Corinthians 11 and read what Paul says about the outcome. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 30. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You see, God determined to kill some of them because of this sin. It doesn't say that they were not Christians. In fact, it indicates that God did this to preserve them. If you pop down to verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Okay, this is in that same context. We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is discipline, this is judgment because of this sin so that they won't be condemned along with the world. This is an indication uh, specifically done so that they would not be condemned along with the unbelieving world. One more example. Turn to Acts 5. Acts chapter 5. Here's a scene where a man and his wife, known as Ananias and Sapphira, they commit the sin of lying to the Holy Spirit. Right? And because of it, in front of the whole congregation, God kills them instantly. Okay, let's, look at, let's look at Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of this land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Imagine that. 
Why did God do this? Again, it doesn't, it doesn't say they were not Christians or no longer Christians, but God was taking them out to set an example according to His own purposes and His own will, and He used this, this event to bring about growth in the church, to bring about a, a reverential fear of God. In verse 5, with, with Ananias, it said, He fell down and breathed His last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And in verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things after Sapphira died as well. Just a few verses later, we see that because of this and all the other signs and wonders that that the Lord was doing through the apostles, um, the church grew. Acts 5.14 says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. In In the midst of All these things, including these two people struck dead because they lied. They they sinned. In both examples, we see sin committed by believers, and God brings about physical death for the preservation of eternal souls. They, They did not lose their salvation, but they committed sin that led to death physically, the other option or possibility that we mentioned was that this passage could be a reference to someone who says they're a Christian, but they're not. Someone who bears the name brother, but they're a false convert. And we know from this letter that we've been going through that um, that, that is a reality in the congregation. If that's the case, that this was a false convert, a, a person who thinks they're a believer, who says they're a believer, but they're not, then the sin that leads to death has a much worse outcome. Right? Both Christians and non-Christians commit sins. That's a reality, right? Both commit sins that don't lead to death, right? That's every day. Both commit sins that sometimes lead to physical death, but only for the unbeliever does sin lead to spiritual death, eternal death. In reality, they're, they're already spiritually dead because they've not received mercy. They, they have not trusted Christ as their Savior. An unbelieving person is already in that place of spiritual death. That's where you and I were before our faith in Christ. We were spiritually dead. So, so yes, the Christian was spiritually dead but has received mercy and now has been made alive in Christ. So when this unbeliever commits sin leading to death, they remain in their state of spiritual death, but it's sealed forever. They're already there spiritually dead. They commit a sin that leads to physical death. There they are stuck in their sins. Their sins have not been forgiven. Their fate is sealed forever. There's no, there's no, no other chance. And there's, there's a sense in which, according to God's will, there's no longer any salvation possible for this person that's being talked about. This is what the author of Hebrews wrote about in chapter 6. We'll read a section of this chapter, if you want to start turning there, to Hebrews chapter 6. It's talking about people who are, um, I better turn there too. This passage is talking about people who are not Christians, but had been in the fellowship of believers. 
for however long, whatever period of time, they've, they've been there. They've been in the congregation of believers. And let's look and see what, what the author of Hebrews says here in chapter 6, starting in verse 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. You see, this passage is describing those who have been a part of the fellowship of believers. Again, for however long, whatever that time period is, they've been there. They've, they've benefited in that congregation from the work of the Holy Spirit in that church, from the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of true Christians. They've benefited from that, but they were never believers. They, they, they were spectators. They're surface participants. These are the same people that John described earlier um, that when he said that they, they went out from us because they were not of us. They have merely tasted the goodness of God. They've, they have the knowledge of the gospel, but they reject it. And you can see the, back in our, you can head back to our passage now in, in 1 John 5, but you can see the finality in this state of a person when God says there in that Hebrews passage, this person, this person who has rejected the truth, it is now impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Impossible, he says. There's a finality implied for the sin that leads to death. Whatever it is, it is almost as if John's saying here in our passage in 1 John, you can pray for it, but there's no use. God has determined there is no life to be given for this person. If, if a Christian is what we're talking about, they'll still be saved eternally, but God has determined to take them home now for whatever His reasons are. If not a Christian, they die physically, then remain in their sins, having not trusted Christ, and there's no hope for them. If you were to continue in Hebrews, over in chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, describes this person's fate. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, okay, that's those people that were being described there, kind of the hangers-on. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That sacrifice is Christ. That's what's being talked about. But what is, what is there left? Verse 27, But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. These are those who die without mercy, further in that chapter, who have trampled underfoot the Son of God and have profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. That's, that's who's being described there. So as we said before, all sin leads to death. We know that. We understand that. But there's, 
Only one sin that leads to death without the possibility of forgiveness. One sin that God will not, will not forgive. In Matthew 12, 31, we see that. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to that of demons was what Jesus was dealing with there. Uh, there's, there's a denial of the work of the Spirit, a denial of the gospel. In simple terms, the one thing a person will not be forgiven of is unbelief, is a, is a failure to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ for their salvation. When a person dies having, having not believed and receiving salvation, it's too late. There's, there's no second chance. There's no purgatory. You don't, you don't work it off somewhere else. It's done. Therefore, John doesn't focus on the sin leading to death. It's interesting. He doesn't focus on the sin leading to death. He mentions it. If it is a Christian, well, they're in heaven. Maybe their sin led to death, but if they're a Christian, they're in heaven with God. They did not lose their salvation. If it's an unbeliever, well, they died in their sins. They are not with God. Either way, it's too late. When you're talking about the sin that leads to death, it's, it's too late. Either way, God did according to His will, and a prayer for the opposite won't be heard. It, it can't be undone. What God has determined here can't be undone. But what I want you to notice in our passage is that the point here is not that we would focus on what particular sins could lead to death. The emphasis from John is on the sin that does not lead to death. You can almost hear it in the passage that the comment about sin leading to death is sort of a, an afterthought almost. It's like, like a side note to the point. Let's look at our text again in 1 John 5, 16 and 17, and I think you'll, you'll see what I mean. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, he mentions the sin that does not lead to death three times. He repeats it three times in those two short verses. His, he mentions the sin not leading to death. He only mentions the sin that leads to death one time, and it seems merely to point out that it exists. He doesn't even say what to do about that sin. In fact, he says, I do not say that one should pray for that. That's interesting. God's made up his mind. It's no use to pray about that. It's not a sin to pray about that, but it, it's too late. John is after what's not too late. Right? So, so John's focused on the sin that does not lead to death. What do we do? Well, we pray. Earlier, John talked about, earlier in the whole letter, uh, back in chapter 2, John talked about the brother who sins having an advocate in Jesus Christ. He, he intercedes on their behalf as their Savior, as their, the propitiation for their sins. 1 John 2.1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous. There, Christ is the advocate. Here, John is telling us to intercede for our brother or sister in Christ in prayer. He's telling us when we see them sinning to intercede for them in prayer. Ask God and he will give him life. If John is talking about false Christians, if he's talking about unbelievers who use the name brother but they're not truly, pray for them that God will give them life, meaning true salvation. They think they're saved, but they're not. What do they need? They need the gospel. They need to be saved. We pray for them that God will give them life. It's not too late. They haven't died physically, right? If it is a believer that you see, a true believer committing this sin, pray for them that God will give them life. Now, they already have eternal life, right? They're a believer. They already have life in that sense. So what would you be talking about if that was the case? Well, a restoration of fellowship, a restoration, a right relationship with God and with, with the church. That's what you're praying for. When, when a brother or sister is sinning, a true brother or sister is sinning, you're praying that God will give them life, meaning bring them back to, to right fellowship with God, right fellowship with the body of Christ. How do we know if it's too late for a particular person? We don't. <laughs> You shouldn't come out of this walking around trying to figure out who it's too late for, right? We don't know. We don't need to know. We need to know that it can be too late, but we can't change that, so we don't need to know who. What benefit would there be of, of knowing? You know, probably for a lot of people, it would lead them to ignore that person or go, eh, well, whatever, you know, maybe even be mean to that person. I don't know. There's no point in us knowing who. But if you see a brother committing a sin not leading to death, pray for them. We commit sins not leading to death every day. Every sin you ever commit that you don't die from right then is a sin not leading to death. The point is that we should be lifting one another up in prayer, not trying to figure out who it is that it might be too late for. And we should, we should be grateful and glad as Christians if another brother or sister is lifting you up in prayer because they, they see a sin. And in fact, we should, be, we should be confronting a brother or sister about the sin. Which person is John referring to in this passage? I mean, I talked about the two possibilities. Um, I don't know for sure who, who he's referring to. But we've seen examples of both being a reality, biblically speaking. Both, both are true. What do we do? Like Matthew 18, 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You see the goal there? To gain your brother, to, to bring them back. There's a, there's a pursuit of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and I would hope that my brothers and sisters in Christ would pursue me in that way, in prayer and in calling out sin and calling me back to right relationship with God. So we should lift them up in prayer and ask, ask of God. And John says he will give them life. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this night. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that as, as believers, we do not need to fear 
condemnation. We do not need to fear eternal punishment. Christ himself took that upon his own body. He took the wrath that I deserve. And I don't have to fear, Lord. This is why the scriptures talk about believers having confidence, having assurance, boldness, not arrogance, but Father, we, you are so trustworthy and right and true and merciful and gracious. And we come to faith in Christ. You have promised that you will lose none of all that the Father has given you. What an amazing promise that is. I pray, Father, you would help us that as we, in our own lives, struggle with ongoing sin, that we would continually work on killing that sin in our lives. With the help of the Spirit, Lord, strengthen us for that. And Father, when we see a brother or sister sinning, give us the courage, give us the love for them that would cause us to pursue them and say, brother or sister, you're sinning. Repent and be restored and pray for them. Help us to pray for them, Father, not just to go talk to people about it, to gossip about it. Help us to lift them up in prayer to a God who answers prayer according to his will. And Father, I pray that we would be receptive to those who may approach us and say, brother or sister, you're sinning. Help us not to be prideful and irritated. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to acknowledge our sin and help us to repent. I pray that it would be a goal of ours that we would want to win our brother, win our sister. We thank you, Lord, that you are continuing through your word and your Holy Spirit to sanctify us in the truth. And this life, however long we're left here, Lord, before you return and, and take us home, Lord, that you are continually making us more and more like your son. We thank you for the discipline that you bring about in our lives. We praise you for it, Lord, and thank you for this blessing tonight of reading your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.